dear listeners, welcome back for another week of historical and another week of Irish historical figures. What's funny is we started March off with me being sick. Then the week after it turned out Seattle, where I live, is the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak in the United States. Although I don't think I actually had it. And now this week we are basically on lockdown. We have to do extreme social distancing. All the bars and restaurants are closed. My husband has been working from home for the past week, so he's all up in my space. And my kid is home from school until April 24th, which coincidentally is my birthday. And if there is a god or goddess, I truly hope this is all over by then. That would be the best birthday gift ever. Okay, disaster talk aside, let's get down to today's subject. Michael Collins. No, not the guy who stayed in the spaceship while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon. Not the Irish author. Michael Collins was an Irish revolutionary and kind of the whole reason that Ireland is an independent country now. The thing, though, is that history is extremely complicated, and in researching for this episode, I did a lot of reflecting on language. Because, depending on who you ask, Michael Collins was either a freedom fighter or a terrorist. He actively killed people or was responsible for people's deaths, but those people were the oppressors of his country. And two of the organizations he was involved with, Sinn Féin, which for Americans, that's spelled S-I-N-N-F-E-I-N, and the Irish Republican Army, also known as the IRA, are still active today. Michael Collins was one of the most requested historical figures in the survey I conducted a while back. Not really sure why, other than I have a big listener base in Ireland, but doing research for this episode was hard because it's pretty recent history. Like, there was still regular violence from some of these groups up through the end of the 90s. Like, I actually remember when bombings in Ireland were in the news. Also, when I was in high school, the senator who Bill Clinton sent to kind of broker the Good Friday Agreement in, I think it was like 1998 or something like that, he actually spoke at a college near where I lived. It's also difficult to cheer someone on because you love their ideals, but their tactics are questionable, to put it mildly. Philosophy time over, though. Let's talk about this extraordinary life. First, here's a super brief, super basic recap of British rule in Ireland so you kind of understand the landscape of the times Michael was living. The Normans originally invaded Ireland in the 1100s, and the kings of England had lords ruling it as a fiefdom up until 1542 when our very own favorite tyrant, Henry VIII, was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. He wanted Ireland to be a kingdom, with himself as king, of course, because the original lords of Ireland were given that title from the Pope. The other benefit to making it a kingdom was loyalty and a national identity, and soon after, he installed the Royal Irish Army. Ireland remained a kingdom until 1800. From then until 1922, which is the year Michael Collins died, it was known as the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. The Great Potato Famine happened beginning in the 1840s, and while the Irish always had stirrings of rebellion, this was when they began to advocate for what was called home rule meaning that they would get to govern themselves but would remain in the UK. All right, so that's the scene. Now let's get to Collins. Michael Collins was born in County Cork, Ireland on October 16, 1890. He was the last of eight children for Marianne and Michael John Collins. The two had gotten married in 1876 when she was 23, and Michael John was 60. Michael John was 76 years old when Michael Jr. was born. Now this is very important because thanks to Michael John's age, he was actually there during the potato famine. 
Not many people from that time were left during Michael's childhood and early adulthood, so his father's memories of that, as well as how the British had basically condemned the Irish to starve, helped instill in Michael a strong nationalist streak from an early age. His father was a fairly well-off farmer and also dabbled in mathematics. Key, though, was his involvement in the Irish Republican Brotherhood. When Michael attended school, his teacher and headmaster were both fellow members of the IRB, and these three men really solidified his Irish pride. But in those days, a lot of Irish boys wound up brawling and drinking, and Michael's mother wanted none of that for her son. He was already a boy with a fiery personality, and he loved to wrestle. She encouraged him to take the British Civil Service Test, which he passed, and he had an elder sister who lived in London, so his mother arranged for him to get a job at the post office and live with his sister. He was to live in London for 10 years, which this little tidbit was kind of shocking to me given his nationalism. However, his time in London trained him for the work that he would do for revolution. You see, even though he was in London, aka height of the British Empire, there were Irish nationalist groups such as the Gaelic League and the IRB, of which his father had been a member. Michael was really tall and good-looking, friendly and gregarious. People liked him, and he easily made connections. He even had the nickname, The Big Fellow. In addition to taking courses in law at King's College London, he also got a job at the London office of the Guarantee Trust Company of New York, which we know now as J.P. Morgan. He became the treasurer for the IRB, and all of this organization and money handling is important later, so keep it in mind. In 1916, after 10 years in the den of the enemy, Michael Collins returned to Ireland, and this was when things got real. 1916 was the year of the Easter Rising, and a quick little recap of that and remember, this is the Cliff's Notes version because it's really complicated. Since Ireland became part of the UK in 1800, the Irish were pissed because it was kind of like apartheid in South Africa in that the British held all the good land and wealth and resources, leaving the Irish impoverished and dependent. Several militant groups, such as the Irish Volunteers, were part of the operation, but the IRB, of which Michael's father was a member and he himself was the treasurer for the London branch, were the ones that planned the Easter Rising. The Easter Rising was a formal armed insurrection against the British, and it happened, as you have guessed, during Easter week of 1916 on April 24th. My birthday again. Weird. All the Irish Republicans turned out in Dublin, seizing the main buildings. The IRB declared Ireland a free republic. So the British, who at this point are starting to lose their colonies, Queen Victoria is long dead, they're like... OMFG, these Irish rebels are trying our patience. We need to just take them out so they know not to mess with us anymore. Not what happened. I mean, the British crushed them. The whole thing was a disaster, which resulted in lots of civilian casualties. But what happened next is what led to Michael Collins' rise to power, as well as the inevitable free state. The Irish Republicans were able to hold out for six days, which according to international law was long enough that it counted so that they could claim independence as opposed to just being classified as like a one-off rebellion. The main guy who orchestrated this was a man named Joseph Plunkett. Because Michael had gained a lot of respect in the IRB, he got connected to Plunkett and served as his right-hand man at the uprising. Michael also helped train the troops. Okay, so here's the big thing that happened. Instead of having normal trials, the British just rounded up the leaders of the insurrection and shot them on scene. Michael had been identified as one of the leaders, but by random happenstance, he heard his name called, which caused him to start walking toward the person who called it out, and he ended up in line to go to a prison camp with the rest of the prisoners, as opposed to the firing squad. So someone up there was looking out for him. Because the British had, you know, committed war crimes there, the Irish public, who beforehand were like, um, you know, we could do the home rule thing, now they were like, fuck you, England, we are never ever getting back together. 
So now the Irish people are on board. Michael was energized, even at prison camp, and wanted to start plotting the next big attack. But what he learned from Easter Rising was that you got to go guerrilla if you're a small country up against an empire. Sound familiar, America? Between 1916 and 1919, Michael further stepped up the rungs of power. He was BFFs with Arthur Griffith, who was the founder of Sinn Féin, and Michael rose to be on the executive council of the organization with Griffith and Eamon de Valara, who was the future president of Ireland and played by Professor Snape in the Michael Collins movie, which I'll get to in a bit. In 1919, Collins got tipped off that there would be raids against him and his fellow leaders. De Valara didn't heed this warning and was arrested, though Collins managed to escape. They were both leaders on the first doll, which is basically equivalent to a parliament. Collins helped De Valara escape, and from there, De Valara went to New York to try to get some backing from Irish Americans to give them some money for their cause. Because of his time working at old-timey J.P. Morgan, De Valara appointed Collins as finance minister, and here, our little math wonderkin child of an amateur mathematician father, was able to work out a national loan that bankrolled the brand new republic. Okay, so it's 1919. He's a legislator the Minister of Finance, but then the Irish War of Independence starts in earnest, so he starts wearing new hats. He becomes both president of the IRB and director of intelligence for the IRA. Remember, these are two militant groups, and the IRA is still sort of around, not anywhere near what it was, but it's still considered a terrorist organization in the UK. De Valera is still in America rallying people to his cause, and now Michael Collins is leading the government, leading the IRA, smuggling in weapons, and organizing the Squad, which was a group of assassins charged with killing British agents and officers. Busy little bee. In 1920, Collins organized Bloody Sunday, which was an evening in which he had 12 British agents assassinated by the Squad. Even back then, people were like, dude, this messed up. He defended his actions as being necessary because they were fighting for freedom from an empire. He also actively did his best to limit civilian casualties. The British were not too happy about this, to say the least, and put a 10,000-pound bounty on his head. He also had a British agent help him out and let him view secret files, and apparently was planning to have every agent in Dublin murdered, but that didn't happen because now we come to ceasefire. In 1921, the British were just like, oh my god, we are tired of this, and we don't really like you guys anyway, let's just talk. A truce was called, and De Valera appointed Collins as a delegate to go to London to negotiate a treaty so that Ireland would finally be a free state. Collins was gone for four months, taking meetings with Winston Churchill, no less. He wasn't the prime minister yet, though. But here's the thing. For all his nationalism and idealism, Collins realized that actual legislation and compromise was a different beast altogether. He knew that he wasn't going to get everything that he and his countrymen wanted in one fell swoop. So the treaty that was ultimately signed, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, did two major things. First off, it made Ireland more like a province, kind of like Canada. Not totally free, but Collins viewed this as something that would come in stages with more negotiation over the course of years. Second, and most important to us today, it established Northern Ireland and partitioned the country. Collins had power to sign the treaty from the doll, and when he did, he remarked that he had signed his own death warrant. And he was right, because when he got back, people were pissed at him. They were mad that he had sold Northern Ireland out, even though they were unionists, and mad that he hadn't gotten the fully free state. My view here is that he had a long game that he expected to be able to play. So the treaty ends up passing in the doll, but just barely, and now they're fractured into those who want this treaty and those who are anti-treaty. Eamon de Valera was anti-treaty and ended up resigning from the presidency, so then Arthur Griffith stepped up and appointed Collins as chairman of the cabinet, which is basically the same thing as prime minister. This was in January of 1922. Soon after, Ireland was in civil war. The causes being too much to get into for today's purposes, though. 
In August, it seemed like things were calming down a bit. Collins would kind of travel all over the country and do inspections on territory and arms recovered from the anti-treaty faction. When he was traveling through West Cork, his hometown, some anti-treaty soldiers recognized him because he was wearing his full-on uniform. His motorcade was ambushed, and he hopped out of the car and started firing back and shouting. Michael Collins was shot in the head, the only fatality of the bunch, on August 22, 1922, at the age of 31. Because the events of his death were suspicious, it's kind of like the JFK assassination in which there are a ton of conspiracy theories. One theory I saw was that he was either drunk or hungover because here he was, the guy who trained guerrilla fighters, and he's just breaking every protocol, charging them and firing back. We'll never know though. Anyway, that was Michael Collins. Now, like I said before, I felt like this really made me reflect on our own country and who we deem as terrorists. Because when you think about it, George Washington did the same guerrilla tactics, and to us, he's a hero and revolutionary. It really comes down to what side you're on when we're talking freedom fighters versus terrorists. Okay, now that we've done the deep dive, let's talk about some recommendations, and I've got some good ones for you. First off, obviously you should watch the Michael Collins movie from 1996 starring Liam Neeson as Collins. Liam Neeson actually looks exactly like him. It's weird. It was a good movie. It was directed by Neil Jordan and starring Alan Rickman, a.k.a. Professor Snape, as Eamon de Valara, and then randomly Julia Roberts doing a terrible accent as Michael Collins' fiance Kitty, who there is barely any information about. In terms of biopics, it's good, but I felt it was really hard to follow, and that's because I didn't know the detail of the history yet. I watched the movie first, and that was a mistake. So instead, I want you to start with three podcasts. First, the History of Ireland podcast has a 15-minute episode just called The Big Fellow. That's a quick biography by someone who knows a lot more about this than I do. Second, Rick Steves, The Travel Guide, has an episode that starts off with Michael Collins and places to visit if you're interested in his life. It's episode number 416, The Irish Legacy of Michael Collins, and is the first segment of the episode. Last, there's an episode on BBC4 from 2004 called Great Lives Series 6, Michael Collins. The producer of the movie, Michael Collins, and a historian talk about his life, and this was a philosophical discussion on whether or not he's a hero, because even in Ireland, people are still pretty split. So listen to those first, then you can watch the movie. Now, I don't know how I found this, but there's a historical fiction about Michael Collins, and listeners, it is absolutely delightful, and the most Irish story I've ever heard, I swear to God. It's called Terrible Angel, a novel of Michael Collins in New York. And basically, Michael Collins is in purgatory until the 1990s. Then St. Michael, who is my confirmation saint, because like I said, I'm Irish-Italian from New York and therefore Catholic. Sorry, digression. But St. Michael offers him a chance to go to heaven if he helps an Irish political prisoner in New York get out of prison before the British get it. It's a very Irish New York story, and I love the dialogue and how creative and fun it is. I can't do any accents whatsoever, not even Irish ones, but every time he says Jesus in the book, I laugh because they spell it Jesus, like J-A-Y-S-U-S. All right, lovelies, that's all on Michael. I hope I've done him justice and that you enjoyed this. I can always come back to him and do more if you want, since so many of you requested him. Just let me know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can email me. National Fragrance Day is March 21st, and since you're wonderful listeners, you can have early access. Use code POD321 on immortalperfumes.com when you check out for 20% off any of my historically inspired perfumes. That's good now through March 22nd, and again, it's POD321. Also check out the show notes. I wrote a blog post about how you can support small businesses in Seattle that are feeling the pain right now because of all the closures since we're basically on quarantine. Just remember, if you want books right now, please order online from your local indie bookseller. Amazon's going to make a killing. So 
support the Indies. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you back here next week for a final entry in Irish History Month about the tale of a person born a woman who lived as a man and became the highly regarded Dr. James Barry. (laughs) 